0: Peter chapter 3. This morning's scripture portion is 1 Peter 3 verses 8 through 12. It's a 16th sermon in a series in 1 Peter that we're working on this year. And I want to share as I begin this morning, a few weeks ago my wife and I uh, took a little uh, half a day and visited Valley Forge over in Pennsylvania. The National Park, not the casino. (laughs) Um, It was a beautiful spring day, slightly overcast, a little windy, a little cold. But what a magnificent blend of God's creation and a serious and joyful monument to American freedom. A diverse nation, a nation of immigrants, as some have observed. Joined together, as the saying goes, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. But this is our challenge. As we continue to grow as a country and mature, we have put some terrible chapters behind us. And we have, by God's grace, been able to leave some of our gross national sins in the past. But our oneness continues to evolve. And even as we've repented of some sins and turned our back on some great injustices, we have invited new sins into the fold, so to speak. So while we've made gains since those days of Valley Forge, we have also forgotten one of the most important factors of oneness or unity that there is, which is Almighty God. So you can't have, out of many, one as a saying and not also have, in God we trust, as a saying. I believe they rise and fall together. But like-mindedness or oneness isn't just a challenge for the country, it is actually a specific calling for the church. Being a unified people, a diverse congregation, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, doesn't come naturally. The church has also made gains in oneness over the centuries in unity. We've grown in our understanding of doctrine, of theology. The church today is a better church in many ways than it was in the first, second, third century. But we've also allowed influences into the body of Christ which have made us weaker, a poorer assembly, a less powerful gathering of Christians, particularly in modern times, secularism and political ideologies, as I've noticed, have masqueraded like a Trojan horse as the gospel and made their way into the church, made their way into your homes. I remember when, when we were young parents, which is to say a long time ago, we said, no TVs in any bedroom. We also said no TVs in the house and that lasted for a while. But then TVs changed shape in the form of a phone or a tablet. And now there's a TV in every single one of our bedrooms. And in case you haven't noticed, it's not easy to control the content on these new TVs. And so, my point is not to make a technology critique, well, I am making a technology critique, I'll admit it. But the point is that secularism, which is to say worldliness and godlessness and values of society which are different than the values of God, find their way into our lives and into the church. And the church suffers as a result. Our unity suffers because some of us, all of us at, at various points, are listening to the voices of the world and saying, that's what I want to be like. And then at other times, we're listening to the voice of God and say, that's what I want to be like. So that's the topic of this morning's message, Unity. And the title of my sermon is A Command, Be of One Mind. Peter has just concluded instructions that he's given to what's called the the Christian household. And in the Christian household, we have members of the household that are addressed, and Peter's chosen three household members to highlight, although he could have chosen many more. He chose servants, wives, and husbands. And as he, as he concludes a, painting a picture of what the Christian household should look like, he moves to talk about what the household of God should look like, which makes sense to me. Because a pastor and an elder is supposed to be a man who manages his own household well. And Paul says, if you can't manage your own household well, how in the world can you pastor or manage the household of God? So there's a biblical connection between our homes and the church. Uh, I've said before, and I didn't make this up, the church is a family of families. So we're one family made up of many individual families. And all the families of the church are different, but we're to find our unity in the church in a certain way. The unity of the body of Christ is a unity of families made up, each one diverse from the next, but with certain things in common. So if God has given us gospel instruction on how to instruct, how to conduct ourselves as individual families, as family households, then we also need gospel instruction on how we should conduct ourselves as a church family. And this is important. We're talking about national unity, and it doesn't seem like we have a lot of national unity these days. Partisanship and division between, say, one side of the aisle and the other side of the aisle is worse than it's ever been. Even members of their own political party aren't talking to each other. And so I believe that that's a symptom of a deeper problem that starts here in this congregation and in other like-minded churches across Gloucester County, New Jersey, and our country. So I'm seeing a connection between the the difficulties that the nation is experiencing, and the difficulties in the church. This is a call to unity. Be of one mind. What does that look like? What does it mean? And so that's how we're going to approach the text this morning. We're going to ask three questions. What does being of one mind mean? What should it look like and specifically, what should we as Mercy Hill do about it? Those three questions are gonna form the basis of my message this morning and my challenge to you. So let's begin by reading God's word in First Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse eight, the word of God. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Be of one mind, that's my title. Sympathy, brotherly love, Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Amen. Let us pray. God, we desire uh, both as families, moms, dads, boys, girls, parents, children, as neighbors, as fellow Christians in this church, as a, as a whole community, we desire the unity which human beings were made for, but that we seem to s- constantly struggle to achieve. Whether it's through fighting or other sources of division, we find ourselves um, scattered and not gathered and not having unity of mind, but uh, arguing and pushing away And separating and so we need your word to instruct us this morning on what it looks like what it means to be of one mind help us now Holy Spirit amen first question what does be of one mind mean what does unity mean here the unity Peter points to if you look at verse 8 is actually the first of five virtues go ahead and count them unity of mind sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And the, the, the word mind appears at the beginning and at the end of the list, and I think that's intentional. But as I'm reading this, I didn't see this in any of the commentaries, but I see unity of mind not only as the first member of the sequence, but the most important one. I'm seeing it as kind of a, a captain virtue, And underneath this chief virtue are a number of uh, secondary virtues that relate to the first one. So, what does it mean? Well, I think unity of mind is the main point of the whole text. That's what I'm saying. And that sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, the four that follow it, point back to this captain virtue or this chief value. So there's a comprehensive quality to unity of mind and I think it involves a kind of careful consideration. There's wisdom required. uh, Peter doesn't just say unity, he says unity of mind. And so the mind introduces a notion of thinking about something. The sort of unity or oneness, like-mindedness that Peter has in mind requires wisdom. Consideration, careful discernment, it requires taking a look at what's in front of you. And we might think about this, sorting it out. I, have, I found a collection of baseball cards that I collected in 1980. They were in a box at the bottom. I mean, it's, it's not my grandfather's baseball card collection, it's mine, but still it's pretty cool. So I went, and uh, my father lives next to a guy who's a baseball card collector, and I typed them all out on a spreadsheet, and I, I sent them to him. I, I know I've got thousands of dollars worth of baseball cards in here. Well, turns out, not so much. But I didn't know that until I used some discernment and careful consideration, and I looked at the, the year of the card, basically its condition, and the name of the player, and whether it was particularly whether it's his rookie year—that's what really counts in these things. I found out. This is a sort of thoughtfulness that's required: a, a, a survey of the situation, a prioritizing. And in my in my spreadsheet, certain baseball cards rose to the top as being worth a little more than the others, although none are worth thousands of dollars. I'm sad to report. What I'm trying to say is that as you look at all the things in your life, all the factors of your life, all the features of your family, all the characteristics of this church, certain things rise to the surface as being more important than others. This careful discernment doesn't eliminate every single uh, uh, difference that exists amongst us. As I went through my baseball cards, I didn't just throw them away. I put them in order. And that's what unity of mind involves. It's an ordering of our differences so that the one thing that comes first is the most important thing, and that's the thing around which we align ourselves. Peter's vision for unity is something bigger and higher that transcends all the other aspects that cause friction or strife between Christians. I want to give you two examples from Scripture. The first is David's installment as king in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Now, the story of David is fascinating because David's anointed as king while Saul is still king, if you know the story. And David spends the next several years running away from Saul who's trying to kill him you say, well, I thought David was anointed king by God through Samuel. And the answer is yes. But Saul wasn't ready to give up his, his power yet. And David was too humble to take it from Saul. And so much of the history, the first batch of history on the kings, involves David running from the king who's no longer the king as the king who should be king. But then after Saul dies, and it's a tragic death, uh, David still isn't installed as king because Saul has a son, and Saul's son thinks that he's gonna be king. And so there's a period of uh, fighting and uncertainty and discernment. But finally, in 1 Chronicles 12, we have the report of how, how it came about that David is installed as king. And listen for the unity in this passage, 1 Chronicles 12. All these men of war were arrayed in battle order and came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. The phrase there I wanna emphasize, they came with a whole heart, with unity of mind. It's the same idea. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them. And also their relatives, from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules, and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes, figs, clusters of raisin, wine, oil, oxen, and sheep, for there is joy in Israel. So the unity of mind centered around this agreement. David is king. And it resulted in a great feast and tremendous joy. Hezekiah's work of reformation also brings about revival and spiritual unity in 2 Chronicles 30. The story with Hezekiah, a king that comes many generations later after David, is that the city is threatened with attack and the, the foreign king is coming and heaping insults on the city saying, you guys are losers. I'm the tough guy. I'm going to defeat you. You can't stand before me. I'm the big bad king. That's a paraphrase and after they were threatened to the point of extinction Hezekiah said no we're going to trust in God they resisted the temptation to disunity in fact at one point this foreign king is speaking in Hebrew to the people on the wall and the thought was well Hezekiah thinks he's so tough he's going to stand but when I speak in Hebrew and and Hezekiah's ordinary soldiers hear about how tough I am they're not going to follow King Hezekiah they're going to listen to me So this foreign king was trying to sow disunity amongst the troops. Don't listen to Hezekiah. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Here's the text. So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh and Zebulun, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month of a very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense, and they threw away the idols in the brook Kidron." So, the unity here that we see is a unity that was threatened by an outside invader, and some of the people didn't listen. But certain men of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves. So, there's a key to unity. And the hand of God was on Judah, it says, 2 Chronicles 30, verse 12, to give them one heart to do what the king commanded. So here, the unity, the unity of mind requires discernment. I heard what this message was saying, and I heard what the king was saying, and I believe God is speaking through the voice of the king, and I'm going to trust that. In both cases, the glory and will of God prevails over a wide variety of opinions. This is political chaos and turmoil. And God, through His Spirit, brings about unity of mind through these various positions and opinions. And what was forged through the discernment and wisdom was an approach that honored and glorified God. Psalm 34 shows up in our text, and that's one more that I'm going to show. What what is this unity? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. David in Psalm 34 is boasting or praising God. And I mentioned Psalm 34 because Peter quotes it in verses 10, 11, and 12 of our passage. Peter has in mind this idea of boasting in God, finding something greater than all of our differences. And by the way, boasting doesn't mean bragging, I'm so good. Boasting means when you boast in God, you're bragging and saying, God's so good, and I'm not. Uh, Let the humble hear and rejoice, David says in Psalm 34. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You know, church fights happen when God is is not magnified. When people are boasting in my plan, my project, my call, my work, my idea. Fighting happens when human beings are are waging uh, conflict without consulting God without making God the Lord. Putting our confidence or boasting or trusting in our own ideas is a recipe for division in the church, which is to say sin divides the church. Sin divides the church. If you're not humble, if you haven't been humbled, you can't be of one mind in the church. So coming into the family of God requires us to be humble. And this is a hard lesson. It's hard for adults. I think it's particularly hard for teenagers and college students to learn. I remember when I was in when I was in high school, I did not want to listen to my parents. My own teenagers. They're not here this morning, so I can say, Do not listen to me. Well they they nod their head, but they're not really listening. But the other day, one of my teenagers, uh, one of my uh, children came to me and they said uh, something. And I said, you know, if you would have asked, I would have told you. But you generally like to figure things out on your own, I've noticed. That was my comment. And there was a smile on the other side. It says, yeah, that's true. The overwhelming emphasis in Psalm 34 is that God makes things right, not David. And that's the, that's the recipe for our church. What we need as a church is for God to make things right, not Pastor Phil's ideas, not the elders' ideas, not your ideas. This is what's unique about the Christian faith is that there's a race to humility. Who can be first to bend the knee? Who can be first to say, I'm sorry? Who can be first to seek reconciliation? Who can be first to say, no, you, after you? Now, Peter had to learn this. Peter's ideas about unity, as he was using his discernment, he was going through all the baseball cards, he had put one at the top of the stack. Jesus is going to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. So in Peter's mind, the most important thing was that Jesus was going to triumph in a military conquest over the pagan overlords, this intruding empire. And so when Jesus started talking about the cross, Peter's like, you will never go to the cross. You're supposed to defeat the Romans, not to be defeated by the Romans. And do you remember what Jesus said in rebuke to Peter? Peter, you have your mind on the things of men, not on the things of God. You are divided This is not unity of mind. As this church has to learn, Peter had to learn to find our unity in the cross. And that means something. We don't just hang a cross on the wall behind the pulpit because it's a decoration. It's a statement of purpose. It's what we're about as a church. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of service. Jesus did not have to die. He chose to. And he chose a particular kind of death. He didn't just experience death so that, you know, you could relate to him. He took your death, the death that you deserved. You mocked him. You deserved punishment. He took your punishment. He honored God. He deserved reward. He gave you his reward. It's the most imbalanced exchange in the history of humanity. His righteous life for your wicked sins. There's nothing like it. There's no other religion like it. Nothing can compare to this voluntary condescending willing setting aside of rights and privileges and justice that we see in Jesus Christ. So when Paul writes in Philippians 2 about having one mind, he says, have one mind in the church, the mind of Christ. And then he states the gospel, who Jesus is and what he did. So as we come into this assembly, and I don't mean just on a Sunday or on a Wednesday night for Bible study or on a Thursday night for men's meeting, as you're a part of this church, as you've made promises as members of the church, as you're thinking about joining this church, here's what you need to know. Unity, what does it mean? It means you have the mind of Christ, and you are promising to live your life with that as the topmost priority, the mind of Christ in all of your relationships. This goes for the children and the adults and everyone in between. It isn't just for the hoi polloi. It starts with the pastor. You need to regularly experience from me that I have the mind of Christ, and I don't do that as well as I should, but that's the goal. That's the topmost priority, and you can call me on it, because that's how the body works. No one person is more important than another. I love the picture, and we're gonna see this a little more in a minute, of the of the body that Paul gives where Uh, If one member suffers, we all suffer. There's an, an, an involvement in one another. Likewise, if someone's sinning, even if it's the pastor, that's a good church. That's the kind of church that you want your parents to be a part of. That's the kind of church that you want your children to be a part of. Is one in which there is an involvement in one another, so there's an obvious commitment by everyone to putting the cross of Christ first. That's what it means that may be the most important thing I say. So what does it look like? I've started to describe this a little bit, but I'm looking now specifically at these four virtues that follow. Unity of mind I'm calling the captain virtue. That's what uh, I've explained what it means. Now look at the next four virtues. What are they? Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, my comments here are based on Ed Clowney's uh, commentary on 1 Peter. Excellent resource. And I think it's one that the women used when they were studying 1 Peter uh, last fall. What does sympathy mean? Clowney says sympathy means readiness to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Sympathy means having feelings similar to the person that is struggling. Now, I don't mean like drowning in that person's feelings. You need to maintain boundaries, and that's something we've learned from uh, psychology that's super helpful. But keeping your eyes on Christ, the cross is first, your identity in Christ is first. With that security, your eternal salvation secure, you can move into other people's messes and not be drowned by them. You can share in their feeling without being overwhelmed by them and some of you struggle with this on both sides. You struggle, you're afraid to enter in so you stay aloof and distant, it's scary. Or you enter in head first and you lose all sense of self, that's called codependency. So neither one represents a biblical sympathy. Clowney points out that husbands in living with their wives with understanding are showing sympathy. Now, I'm learning this, and I've been at it 30 years, but one of the reasons we went to Valley Forge is we were on a date. So, yes, I'm dating my wife of 30 years. She's my girlfriend. And one of my objects in going on a date with Polly is to learn a little more about her. And would you believe we talked about some things on that we we hiked all around this beautiful grounds we talked about some things that i never knew and i heard her explain particularly as she was talking about her relationship with her mom who's deceased with her stepmom and with her dad things that i had never understood before and i don't know what it was maybe it was just the rolling meadows and valley forge maybe it was the fact that i mean all the We were hitting on all cylinders. It was one of those rare moments, guys. And it was like the heavens parted and my wife opened up to me in some things that just really, really shed light on the person that she is. And God gave me a heart of sympathy for her. Now, we fought in the car on the way home, but up until then, it was really great. Brotherly love is the next virtue. I'm not going to dwell on this. I've I've mentioned this in a couple of sermons prior to this morning. The word here is Philadelphian, and it describes two, uh, two persons, male or female, who come from the same womb. So my joke is these are womb mates. A Philadelphian is two people who come from the same womb. But how can you be brothers to someone who has a different mother, if you don't share the same womb? Well, the idea is that God has given birth to you and to me, and that makes us brothers and sisters, or brothers and brothers. We have a spiritual family defined by the new birth, and that's what defines us. So the unity in view here is the unity that makes the new birth that number one baseball card The gospel of Christ, as it comes into my life, brings new life. That's the top priority. That's brotherly love. Compassion is what the ESV calls tender heart. That's the third virtue. Dr. Clowney explains it this way. The gospels speak of Jesus' compassion on the crowds and for the sick. Jesus describes the compassion of his father also in the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable of the good Samaritan, the indifference of the Levites and the priests is contrasted with the compassion of the half-breed, mixed-blood, and marginalized Samaritan. The Samaritan of all the people had compassion on the critically wounded man. He was tender-hearted when the others were hard-hearted. And he did so at great personal expense. Who would have expected a Samaritan to nurse and care for a Jew in that day. This was a love that could not be demanded and this is precisely the compassion or tender heart that Peter describes here. Look, at, look back at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's tender heart. And then finally, having a humble mind. Clowney notes that Friedrich Nietzsche scorned this biblical virtue of humility or a humble mind and called the Jews a people born for slavery, mocking them. But humility means a certain kind of poverty, which is a chosen lowly-mindedness, Voluntarily entering into the last position, regardless of your material possession. And I wanted to reference here humble mindedness in James chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich brother in his humiliation. When I preached on James last year, I explained this this way. The lowly brother, the humble brother, meaning the poor, the person of few means, is boasting, remember I just talked about boasting, the confidence that the the middle class, the lower middle class brother has. His confidence is that he is rich in Christ, and he walks around grinning from ear to ear, knowing that he is not defined by his material circumstances. Now. Materialism and socioeconomic differences is a bigger divide in the church than ethnicity or race. You sooner will see people of different races and ethnic backgrounds worshipping together who have the same social strata than you will see people who come from uh, upper class, middle class, and lower class. And that's, that's a fact. But James 1, 9, and 10 gives us the, the, ante- or the uh, recipe for unity. If the poor brother is boasting that he is not defined by his material possessions and the rich brother is boasting in his humiliation, what does that mean? He's boasting in the fact that he is not saved by his wealth. That I am am just a humble sinner saved by grace. And so all my wealth is at God's disposal. I don't have to serve that stuff. I can walk around with with the whistle on my lips and a spring in my step because I am a sinner saved by grace. And all this material possessions that God has given me has been given me for a stewardship purpose. So that's that's the thing that, that the humble mind does. So before I move to my final question this morning about being of one mind, I want to point out that these virtues that Peter is describing here, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. These are not natural, they're not normal. We see them sometimes in society, you know, tolerance is sort of like sympathy. Inclusivity, we talk about inclusion, including people, that's a cultural shibboleth. You need to be tolerant and inclusive. So we, we see these sort of Christian, um, they're like counterfeits. At my daughter's workplace, she got passed a counterfeit $100 bill about three months, two or three months ago. And um, she didn't realize it until after the guy left with like $92 and change. And so, s- culture, and this happens on Instagram, it happens on TikTok, it happens on all the news sources, wherever you get your news. It's certainly all over Netflix and, and, you know, Amazon Prime and everything else. It's in the newspapers. It's everywhere. It's the air we breathe are these so-called virtues which have kind of a Christian tinge to them, but they lack any Christian substance. What I'm saying is that, that society can mimic these virtues, but it's not the real deal. The real virtue that's being described here is not natural. It requires new birth. What is natural, actually, is what the rest of our text says. Look at verse 9. Revenge, that's natural. Paying, uh, you do me wrong, I'm going to pay you back, and I'm going to put a little extra on it. That's verse 9. You cut me off in traffic? I'm going to cut you off in traffic, which I did last week with my wife in the car. She yelled at me. And I justified myself for about 10 minutes. Evil speech, this is what's natural. Your tongue speaking evil and your lips speaking lies. That's your normal mode, not like-mindedness, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Doing evil, verse 11, that's what comes naturally. And I'll say sowing division rather than seeking and pursuing peace. You're, by the way, you must be a peacemaker. It's not enough just to not cause a problem. In church you are called actively to build and construct monuments of peace. Wherever you see any kind of division or difference, you must build a monument of peace. You need to go to two people and bring them together. It's not someone else's job. Seeking and pursuing peace actively. So your natural tendency is someone else will take care of that. I don't want to get involved in that. That definitely doesn't relate to me. You withdraw from community. But the gospel, as I've already said, leads you into community. Your natural tendency is not only to sow division. Well, I would never sow division in the church. And to not pursue peace. Abdicate your peacemaking. It's one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. And by the way, you don't wait for someone else to suggest it. You get someone else first. The boldness, the courage, the confidence that it takes comes from the cross. It's not, it's not intuitive. And to, to give a point of this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's my, one of my favorite passages for a pastor, but it applies to all of us. Paul is struggling because Corinth, which is a Greek city, doesn't think he's qualified to pastor because he doesn't look like the sophisticated pastors that they had in mind. And so Paul, who's no stranger to sarcasm, says this, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you're like kings, 1 Corinthians 4, 8. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. Spectacle is not a good thing. To angels and men, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are so wise We are weak in Jesus, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. Here it is. When we are reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we appeal. Please. We become and are still like the scum of the earth, The refuse of all things. This is not normal. A church that that is arranged on this principle of like-mindedness will stand out. It will be the talk of the town. It's impossible to hide because you don't see it anywhere else. What you see is what Corinth was doing. You raise up the good-looking and you hide the ugly. You raise up the strong and you hide and make fun of the weak. But in the church, it's opposite. It's counterintuitive. So what should we do? We've seen what it means and what it looks like. What should we do is summarized by Peter with one phrase. You are called to bless. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You say, well, when was I called? When you were baptized. Well, I don't remember being baptized. That sort of proves the point, doesn't it? No one calls himself. God calls you. God blessed you, and God calls you to bless He has blessed you in Christ and he calls you to return that as a favor to others for the rest of your life. I mentioned in my opening comments a visit that Polly and I took to Valley Forge, a great monument both to nature and to American freedom. But it has special reference to my sermon this morning and I'd like to explain that as I close. According to historical accounts, What began as thousands of disparate bands of colonial militias supported by a ragtag band of camp followers and allies, in December of 1777, a year later, through Washington's leadership and skillful command, became a cohesive and disciplined fighting force. This is a quote from the National Park Service website. On December 19th, 1777, 12,000 soldiers and 400 women and children marched into Valley Forge and began to build what essentially became the fourth largest city in the colonies at the time, with 1,500 log huts and two miles of fortifications. It lasted six months from December until June. The encampment was as diverse as any city and made up of free and enslaved African American soldiers and civilians, indigenous people, wealthy officers, impoverished enlisted men, European immigrants, speakers of several languages, and adherents of multiple religions. And through the duration of the encampment, Washington inspired the soldiers through his own resilience and sense of duty. He persuaded Congress to reform the supply system and end crippling shortages. He attracted experienced officers to the cause including Prussian officer Baron von Steuben who was assigned the task of training the troops. He taught them new military maneuvers and fighting tactics along with reforms in military hygiene and army organization which later became the foundation of the modern United States Army. Here's the point, they came in disunified and through Washington's leadership Van Steuben's expertise in fighting skills, they became an organized army which eventually would take on the British and triumph. What does that have to do with our church? I don't want us to start doing military drills. But we are the army of God and we need more discipline than we have, more intentional efforts at being an organized fighting force, if I may put it that way. What, What we need is what they did with David in ancient Judah. We need to rally around installing David as king, except it's David's son, Jesus. We need to recommit as a church, and this is what revival looks like, a fresh commitment to Jesus as king of this church. That's what we need to do. With Hezekiah, there was a renewed trust in the wisdom, the spirit-given wisdom, given to King Hezekiah. They refused to listen to the enemy voices, and they submitted themselves to the princes and to the king. And that's also what renewal looks like in a church. We submit ourselves to the leadership of the pastors and elders of the church. We trust that God has installed these men in these places, and we're going to follow them. We're going to listen. We need to do Psalm 34 actively. Boast in the Lord. Come, you telling me, me telling you, you telling one another. Let us exalt in the Lord. Let us boast in the Lord. No other standard in this church but the righteousness of God. Not my own gifts and abilities or yours. Humbling ourselves. And as I've been thinking about our church's mission and vision and talking with the elders, I'm thinking along these lines. And I'd invite you to think with me that we would become a like-minded, unified church which shows sympathy, humbleness towards one another, compassion, and brotherly love. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its appeal for unity in this church. God, we have a long way to go, and each one of us brings our own agenda And oftentimes, as we've seen many times to the breaking of our hearts, when that agenda isn't honored, we see families and individuals just leave. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring about unity in this church, that you'd heal our wounds, that you'd cause us to find our topmost priority in the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's counterintuitive, but in resigning our lives, we gain them back, that's the only way. And I pray that this would be true, not just for the official leaders of the church, for the men and women who have roles and responsibilities, including myself, but that we would see a groundswell of unity, of like-mindedness in the regular people of our fellowship, of the people of no account, the children, the persons that have no responsibility as it might seem, Lord, the elderly, the infirm, those who are, uh, have, have, who are new, those who are different. Lord, I pray that we would see in our church Jesus on the lips and in the lives of every man, woman, boy, and girl. And in this, Lord, would you bring renewal to our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. Please visit our website at www.mercyhillingj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.